Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 320 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing horror stories that are about politics or that have a political message. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix making his 15th appearance on the show. He's the author of such novels as Satan Loves You and My Best Friend's Exorcism, and his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His new heavy metal horror novel, We Sold Our Souls, will be out in September. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Greetings, comrades. <laughs> the next up, we've got Anna Marie Cox, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 309. She's a frequent guest on Real Time with Bill Maher, and she also hosted with Friends Like These podcast from Crooked Media. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, The New Republic, Sports Illustrated, and Esquire. And her Space the Nation column, about the intersection of science fiction and politics, appears each week on SciFi.com. So, Anna, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. And also joining us today is Sam J. Miller, making his fifth appearance on the show. He's a community organizer in New York City and the author of the novels Blackfish City and The Art of Starving. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons, and his work has received the Andre Norton Award and the Shirley Jackson Award. So, Sam, welcome to the show. Hey. <laughs> okay, and so when I think about politics and horror, the first thing that comes to mind for me is Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. So, Grady, what do you think about that? Do you think those movies are a good place to start a conversation about politics and horror? Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, there's so many issues, right, with talking about horror and politics, like define horror, define politics, all that stuff. Like, um, and, you know, Night of the Living Dead was not supposed to have any political message whatsoever. I mean, Romero has been really, really um, uh, sincere and, and, and spoken extensively about that on the record, you know, just saying that. They just want to make a zombie movie and, you know, they, they cast, uh, I think Dwayne Jones is the actor, uh, because he was just the best one they could afford. Um, and, you know, obviously they realized sort of what they had after that. Um, and then Dawn of the Dead, you know, consciously he wanted to make some statements about mindless American consumerism. But, you know, you get into this thing of, are we talking about politics, like the relationship of the individual to the state? Or are we talking about politics, like social politics, like, you know, the, the political climate of the country or the social climate of the country? It gets confusing. Hmm. I think you may be overthinking this a little bit, Grady. I mean, to my mind, just a movie that's about consumerism or has an explicit message about consumerism like Dawn of the Dead, totally 100% appropriate for this panel. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying it's not appropriate. I'm just saying, like, you know, it is very hard to decide what's politics and what's not, you know, um, is get out a political film or a social film or both or does it matter? Okay, well, before we get to Get Out, let's just stick with Night of the Living Dead for a second. So you say that it did not have an ex an intentional political message, but why is it, do you think, that so many people have read it that way? Well, I think the time it came out, you know, I mean, there was really, there was a lot of unrest in the States. Uh, there was a real um, anti-Vietnam war movement, a real peace movement. Um, and there was a real feeling that the country was sort of split into two parts, right? There were, there were people marching against the war and there were people going off to fight who seemed to be caught in the middle. And there were people marching to support the war and against the war. So, I mean, it was a really divisive, divisive time. Um, what year was night? It was at 64. Four or a little later? I mean, I don't know off the top of my head. Does anyone know off the top of my head? 68. 68. 
68, yeah. And so, I mean, it was a super duper divisive time in the country. And, you know, obviously civil rights were a huge part of the conversation then. So when you have a movie about a bunch of, a huge group of mindless drones who simply seem to eat and, and destroy things, um, and have no greater purpose against a small, tiny group of people who are trying to think their way out of a problem, who are besieged on all sides. And the final survivor is a black man who gets killed by the representative, representatives of, of law and order and thrown on a, a bonfire. I mean, geez, it's a lot to unpack. Well, see, so Sam, as someone who knows the date of this film off the top of your head, do you want to <laughs> add anything about uh, to what Grady's saying about whether the politics in this movie? I mean, I think that it is a super political film in the way that any American horror film is going to capture the politics of America and and all the things that make us horrible. Um, and you know, only by like really aggressively avoiding any real world issue can you can you can you do that? Can can you make a non political horror film? I think because horror is about what scares us. And if you you know scratch the surface of something and and look a little bit beneath, you're going to find something something pretty deep. Going back to something like Frankenstein, um, which was made by a gay guy um, about the sort of like attempts to cr- to be a creator outside of what is conventional and and the horror that you're uh, punished with when you do it. I think uh, I'm sure there's plenty, plenty of ways to prove me wrong, but I dare say that all horror is political um, if you try hard enough. All right. So again, once we get it too much too deep into that, let's stick with Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead for, for one second. So, so Anna, have you, uh, do you have any thoughts about these two movies or the zombie craze in general? Oh, well, I get to, I get to open it up to all zombie movies. That's great. Um, I, I think that almost every horror movie is political in some way or another. I think that zombie movies tend to be some of the easiest to unpack because zombie movies, there's always a moment where who we are becomes someone else. Like we become the enemy. And that's always an interesting thing, right? Like what is it that makes someone a zombie? Well, it used to be just someone you know, and now it's a zombie. Um, And I think that Night of the Living Dead, it's hard for me to believe that they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, I guess I can take George Romero's um, word for it. Um, but it was an unusual choice to cast an African-American actor. Um, and surely that they, he gets killed by like a redneck posse at the end. I mean, that doesn't feel accidental. If it was accidental, I mean, it's a genius accidental move. Um, I also think that zombie movies are especially uh, interesting because they also tell us uh, what we're willing to do to survive. Um, and I, I think that all of Romero's movies kind of delve into that. Um, it's interesting also, like I said before, what makes zombies has changed over time. Uh, there used to be a kind of a technological phobia. Like I think the zombies in Night of the Living Dead are the result of, uh, radiation. Um, which also sort of speaks to uh, nuclear fears in the Cold War. But now we see more and more zombies are biological uh, contagions. There's some disease or bite or some kind of something that's passed along in a physical way that, that creates a zombie. And I think that speaks to our anxieties today are much more about the personal body horror of invasion than they are about the invasion, um, you know, that you would think about during the Cold War. Um, I don't think I'm overthinking it either. <laughs> 
um i i do i think that you know like he said like horror is almost inherently political uh it's one of the reasons i love it you know um and to tell me what you're afraid of and i'll tell you who you are and, and that's what that's what horror does well you know a couple of years ago there was just this giant zombie craze and in the midst of that the um our producer john joseph adams released an anthology called the living dead and I don't actually know who wrote the the jacket copy for it, but it's always stuck in my mind. I went out and, and, and copied it down here. It says, zombies have invaded popular culture, becoming the monsters that best express the fears and anxieties of the modern West. The ultimate consumers, zombies rise from the dead and feed upon the living, their teeming masses ever hungry, ever seeking to devour or convert like mindless, faceless eating machines. Zombies have been depicted as mind-controlled minions, the shambling infected, the disintegrating dead, the ultimate lumpen proletariat. But in all cases, they reflect us, mere mortals afraid of death in a society on the verge of collapse. And in case anyone doesn't know what lumpen proletariat means, I looked that up. It's the unorganized and unpolitical lower orders of society who are not interested in revolutionary advancement. Um, Can I jump? I can't believe I can't let this pass, by the way, um, uh, without saying that my friend Dan Dresner actually wrote a book uh, uh, that I believe is called International Relations with Zombies. Hmm. And he's an international relations professor um, who has uses zombies to illustrate various international um, and political science uh, relationships. He, he, it's funny, he said he started out writing it kind of as a joke, but then the more he watched zombie movies, the more he saw he really could use, you know, zombie movies as a way of... Um, uh, talking about uh, world politics. When I asked him actually for the most relevant zombie um, text for understanding the world today, he actually said uh, World War Z um, is the best one, uh, especially his depiction of North Korea, because in World War Z, North Korea just goes dark. It's just this opaque state and no one knows what's happening in it. Well, you know, it's interesting to just to, just when you were reading that, John, uh, and you guys were talking about military stuff with zombies, to look at how much zombies have changed since the beginning. I mean, and that change really happened with Romero, right? Like originally zombies were, um, slaves. They were, you know, in the twenties and thirties, uh, like in movies like white zombie and stuff, zombies were ensorcelled or drugged workers on these plantations run by Bella Lugosi, or they were, you know, minions working in the fields who had no identity and they had spells put on them. Um, and then later Romero was the one who really changed zombies to be sort of, um, ghouls to be reanimated corpses who fed on the flesh of the living but they always 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 had this sort of like um lower class kind of uh association a little bit still like in their roots um and you see zombies getting used a lot in the military um you look at the movie after dawn of the dead day of the dead where the zombies have become almost irrelevant and the whole movie is a clash between scientists trying to solve the zombie apocalypse and the military which is completely falling apart trying to kill the zombie apocalypse and the zombies are sort of caught in the middle getting you know, ultimately either trained by the scientists to be their sort of lap dogs or the military's thinking of either training them to be weapons or, you know, destroying them all, uh, using them almost as like human targets. And you have movies like Death Dream, the Bob Clark film, the guy who did Porky's and, um, uh, Black Christmas about the Vietnam, the soldier who comes back from Vietnam. I think it was a 1974 film. Um, and there's just something off about him. And, you know, there's some people start showing up murdered and kind of chewed on. And his parents eventually realize he's dead. He's a zombie. He's come back from the war and he's as scared of this as they are. Um, even Jacob's Ladder, you can look at kind of as like a zombie film, right? Tim Robbins goes to Vietnam. He gets exposed to a toxic chemical, dies. And the rest of the movie were with zombie dead Tim Robbins. 
Um, <laughs> and then you have the most political example of all, which is Joe Dante's Homecoming, um, which was made, I think, in 2004 as part of Masters of Horror, where all the corpses coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan of soldiers rise up and begin walking in the streets and literally march to the voting booths and vote the uh, president out of office. The thing that I love about zombies is I feel like they're the only real monster of the major movie monster categories that doesn't come from Western folklore or a Western author's imagination, mm. like, like Frankenstein, mm -hmm. right? Zombies, uh, you know, werewolves and vampires are, are sort of, uh, European folklore, but zombies, um, are, are sort of like a Haitian folklore, uh, creature that sort of represents a, um, reimagining of slavery, right? This image of somebody's free will being lost and being used um, to be commanded by another. Um, and the metamorphosis in from like a uh, manipulated corpse to a faceless horde, um, to me, I think the proper context for Night of the Living Dead isn't so much Vietnam, although that's a factor, um, as it is the civil rights movement. Um, and the fact that, you know, what these movies often are about is the end of somebody's world. And usually it's the end of white supremacy. It's the, the idea that like, you know, uh, people are fighting back and suddenly everything has been called into question. Um, and so we're kind of- Sounds like the zombie ourselves. uprising has broken out in the background there, Sam. <laughs> that tends to happen in Manhattan. I, I apologize for that. No, but Sam, I mean, you make a good point, right? I mean, that was Romero's goal all along. He wanted to get Dawn of the Dead was a big, I mean, Day of the Dead was a big step back for him because he wanted his trilogy to show the end of this world, the end of the military industrial complex, the end of civilization, and then to move into what rose up next. Like he wanted to get to a point where he was showing movies where people were exploiting zombies as slave labor, where people were figuring out how to live side by side in this sort of new world where humans with, with warm blood were, were a rarity. I want to put this in. I don't think we've said this explicitly, but so the premise of Dawn of the Dead is that the zombies all go to a mall, the shopping mall, and <laughs> yeah. the, the survivors are, you know, trying to survive. And there's just a line in there that I just love where one of the characters ponders, why, why are they all coming here? And another character says they come to the place that had the most meaning for them in life or something, which I just think is just such a cutting sort of, yeah, bit of commentary. But um, I don't know. It sounded like you were trying to say something uh, earlier. Did you have something you wanted to, to throw in here? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that I, I get from zombie movies also is the idea of what makes us human. Like, what is the defining characteristic of, of what's the difference between us and a zombie, right? And that's something Romero definitely plays with, especially in the idea of with consumerism, right? Who are, who's, who's actually practicing free will here? Like, um, do you, are you a zombie if you just show up at the mall, even though you haven't been zapped by radiation or whatever? Doesn't that make you a zombie too? Um, and I think that the, uh, 28 days later, um, films are really interesting in the way that they play with this too. Um, in bringing up, uh, the treatment of zombies by humans. Um, there's that scene that I find one of the most upsetting scenes in either movie, um, where the soldiers are basically like torturing a zombie, like seeing how long it can, it can go without food. And it's, it, it's strange because they managed to make you feel sorry for this thing, right? Like in the cruelty of the soldiers is definitely kind of highlighted and who, again, like who's, who's really representing humanity here. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think that's always a question in zombies. That's I think that's one of the reasons why zombie movies are, again, I think everything in horror can, can be seen through a political lens, but zombies tend to be, you know, one of the, um, 
most clarifying lenses you can have. Well, I don't know if who, who, how many people have seen the remake of Night of the Living Dead that was made in the 80s by, I think, oh, Tom yeah. Savini. Um, it was 1990 it, with Tom, uh, Tony Todd. Yeah. 1990, was it? Boy, yeah. Sam, you're just the man with the dates here. Um, no. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I really liked that. And it has, it has sort of more of a feminist, um, like it's looking at the events through more of a feminist lens than the original from what I remember. Yeah. Um, but uh, oh, what was I going to say about it, though? Um, oh, is that is that at the end, um, Barbara says, they're us. She's looking at the people mistreating the zombie and she says, they're us, we're them and they're us, something like that. Um, so that, 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 you know, point you're making there, Anna, is just very explicit in, in the remake um, version. Well, and that's, it's an interesting thing, Anna, when you're talking about that in 28 Days Later, because you see that in a little bit in Night of the Living Dead, but also in Dawn of the Dead, right at the beginnings, where you see sort of everyone out shooting zombies like they're at a country's jamboree, and it's almost like a sport. And it does come across as this really bloodthirsty, blood-hungry, you kind of feel sorry for the zombies, right? As an individual, like, they're kind of sad. They're just stumbling along. They have no purpose. As a group, you got to get the hell out of there. Do you think that anyone ever I – was, I was wondering this. Does, do you think anyone ever watches Dawn of the Dead and says, I need to spend less time at the mall or less time shopping <laughs> or something? Or, or is that the sort of you know, political commentary that just you know, doesn't change, any, change anything? I think the people that get that message probably already are already <laughs> thinking about how much time they spend at the mall. And the people that don't get that message like, are not going to ever think about it. Yeah. I'm with Anna. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Consensus has been reached. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so the next, you know, so I said, you know, when I think about politics in horror, you know, that those movies are the first thing that comes to mind. And then close after is They Live, uh, oh, which yeah. if you haven't seen it, sort of the this there's this um, itinerant guy, I think, and he discovers these glasses. And when you put them on, it allows you to see the world as it really is. It allows you to penetrate the sort of a hypnotic field that has been created by these aliens who have conquered earth. And so he looks at uh, billboards and they all say, obey or stay asleep or, you know, don't cause trouble, that kind of stuff. And he, the thing that really gets me is he opens up his wallet and pulls out the money and it's just, it's all just white, you know, white uh, paper with black block text. And it says, this is your God on it. And there is such power to me uh, for me in that because so many people act like, you know, they, they, they profess all sorts of uh, ideals and things, but then they act like money is all that they care about. And so it is just sort of eerily uh, believable uh, that, that if, if the illusions were stripped away, that this is what the, the underlying reality actually is. Yeah. Well, you know, they live as part of this really interesting wave of sort of mid to late, mid 80s to early 90s anti-Reagan films um, that were very anti-consumer. And I mean, they're really interesting, like The Stuff by Larry Cohen about the whole world's crazed <laughs> about this, like, uh, the yogurt ice cream substitute that turns out to be a sentient creature or a return of the living dead, which is one of my favorite horror movies in the sense that it makes the president of the United States, the biggest killer in the film. Um, and the people under the stairs in 91, yeah. which is, I mean, could not get more bald. Um, but they live is so bald. I mean, it's so like, like you said, Dave, it's like, the money says, this is your God on it. The billboards say, obey. Like, the aliens just came here because they want our money. Like, it's so raw and on the nose. Um, 
But there's a great moment that links back to what you were saying a second ago about Night of the Living Dead, how the remake has this sort of feminist angle to it. Um, so Rowdy Roddy Piper at one point, when he puts on the sunglasses and discovers, you know, all these like extra dimensional creeps living, yuppie scum living amongst <laughs> us, he begins to just shoot them wildly. And it, it is interesting to watch the movie now and realize how much of this is like justifying a workplace shooter. Like he walks into a bank and just starts shooting people for no reason anyone in the bank can understand. He does the same thing in a TV station. Um, but then he takes a woman, uh, I think she's played by Meg Foster. She's sort of this like executive type with power, power uh, padded shoulders and feathered hair. And he takes her hostage at gunpoint and he needs to get off the streets. And he, he basically says, you know, drive me to your house, drives him to his house. They go in and he's like, I just need to rest. And he's holding her at gunpoint. And he says, here, try on my glasses because um, I want you to see what I'm seeing. So, you know, I'm not just some crazy guy who abducted you at gunpoint. And she says, I'll put on your glasses and I'll see whatever you see, whether it's what I see or not. And he, he gets all frustrated. He goes, oh, have it your way. And she goes, no, it's your way, which to me is such a great moment, which I think it was Mao or someone who was like, all political power comes from the barrel of a gun. It's like he has a gun on her. She will do whatever he says. And that's sort of this really interesting moment where Carpenter sort of like, critiquing power in a smart way instead of a fun action movie way, which is you put a gun on someone there, they'll assist you, but you can't sort of win their hearts and minds. So you honor Jody thoughts about they live. I, yeah, it's a fantastic movie. I'd forgotten also um, it's not just sending up capitalism, but also there is some uh, feminist commentary too, that the one of the billboards is also Mary and yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it's, there's not a lot of subtlety, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's not a lot of, to deconstruct here. Um, except that, uh, I think people probably don't, um, understand the, the, or don't probably don't think about, I should say, like the ripple effects it's had. Um, like that obey sign, um, is, is what created the Andre the Giant posters from Shepard Fairey. Like he's referencing they live with those. Um, and of course, Shepard Fairey then did the Hope posters, which is, so um, makes you, makes you a little more suspicious of the Hope posters, perhaps, <laughs> for Obama. Um, but I, I, I also like the idea that there is the, I mean, I like the conspiracy theory sort of side of it too, which is not very progressive, right? Conspiracy theories tend to be, you know, by their nature reactionary. The idea that there's this, this, con, there's this whole world happening just underneath the surface that only if you had the right tools, you could understand it. If only you had the right, you know, one thing that everything would click into place and you would see the world as it really is. Um, which is, uh, you know, the paranoid style is very familiar in American politics. And, and like I said, it, it isn't, it, it's, it itself is not incredibly progressive. It's something that, pe that tends to make people feel, you know, frightened and more conservative and reactionary. Uh, and I, I think that that's sort of where the workplace shooting stuff comes in is that how, what do you do after you see how the world really works? I mean, in this movie, there's not a lot of thought given to it, I guess. Like you just shoot everybody. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> Um, I think I would contrast that to kind of get out, which I think raises the question of what do you do after you see how the world really works? Um, what is the next step? Um, it doesn't really answer that question, but I think it, it raises it in an interesting way. Well, like in They Live, it seems like what you would want to do is somehow mass produce those glasses, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there a scene of that? Yeah. I'm, I'm, They're trying there's to. There's a scene where he has like a box yeah. of them, right? And then they move yeah. to contact lenses. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just, I'm just curious to get Sam in here. Sam, do you have any, what do you think about They Live? Do you like this movie? I love it as I love pretty much everything John Carpenter does, even when it's terrible. Um, and I will freely cop to not having seen this movie since the 80s. So my analysis is not going to be super nuanced and rooted in shit that happens in the movie. Um, but it's interesting, um, Anna, what you were saying, um, and comparing this to something like the red pill scene in the Matrix. Yes, I was this just idea, thinking that. This idea that, you know, you will have this moment when you will suddenly see things as they really are. And what the fuck do you do with that? You know, and, and this, this, the feelings of isolation and the idea that the only appropriate response is to start shooting people. Um, I mean, that's one appropriate response for many people. Um, uh, not that that's appropriate. Um, but there's also the idea that you can like, you know, as in the matrix, you can get together with other people who see things the same way and you can, um, you can fight back. Um, I just saw, um, sorry to bother you. Um, I don't know if anybody else yeah. has seen that. I haven't um, seen it. So don't spoil it. Don't know. Yeah. I'm obviously not yeah. going to spoil it. Um, and it's like an amazing movie that is like so weird. And, uh, the, the, the surprises are amazing. So, um, I'm not really sure if I can make the connection without spoiling it, but there's a really interesting way to contrast the, you know, the, the idea that once you see the truth, you're helpless, um, you know, with, with another alternative. I want to just ask you quickly, Sam, you know, um, Grady was mentioning the people under the stairs, which I haven't actually seen, but I was reading up on it a little bit today and it was making it sound sort of like it's about kind of the, you know, the underclass and, and some housing issues. And I know that you're interested, you know, you work with on uh, homeless advocacy and housing policy and stuff. And I was just wondering if you've seen that movie or if, you know, if it relates at all to anything, any of the um, stuff that you work on. Yeah, I totally love that movie and it totally relates. It's totally about slumlords who, um, you know, are letting their tenement building in the city uh, f fall apart while the people who live there are paying too much money in rent. Um, and so as a result of how hard they're struggling, they go to rob their slumlord, um, who is revealed to be, um, monstrous in ways that are far beyond the normal slumlord m monstrousness. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really great movie. I would actually rate it, uh, up there with Candyman as like probably the two most effective horror movies about the housing crisis, um, uh, which I could, yeah. I could go on and on about, but we'll refrain. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting, though, also what was just being said about um, you were just saying about the red pill, right? Because the red pill, I mean, they live is basically the Matrix, just with a lower budget and less <laughs> martial arts. <laughs> and um, there is this thing, though, where you look at, you know, the red pill has now become, you know, a board on a sub on Reddit and sort of a shorthand for guys who've woken up to the truth about women and the way the world works and how it's all... Who think they've woken up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, important, important, very important point there. Yeah, sorry, yes, thank you. Um, and, you know, wasn't there a guy in California who killed some people at a sorority house who was a, who was a red pill guy, yeah. you know? And so it really does, when you look at these some of these past movies, like they live with Roddy Piper going, I'm awake, people wake up, and walking into a TV station and shooting everyone it really it really gets a little harrowing when you start like sort of teasing that out well i, I thought that was interesting on what you were saying that conspiracy theories are sort of inherently reactionary could you expand on that a little bit well um hofstetter probably did it better than i did but um or i could but um 
basically, yeah, like a, a conspiracy theory generally ends or, you know, the, the, the outcome of a conspiracy theory, um, is fear and paranoia, uh, and it, a justified fear and paranoia. And you, are, you know, if you, if you want to do anything about it, to do anything about your powerlessness, um, you know, violence is an option for a lot of people. Um, I was actually thinking about the, when you first started talking about red pills, um, I was thinking about how it is used today as kind of a shorthand for meninism yeah. is sometimes called <laughs> to, uh, and it, and how violent that is. And also, you know, BuzzFeed just had a great story about a guy that kind of, you know, segued pretty seamlessly from, uh, I know, Alex Jones and Milo fandom uh, to being uh, radicalized so much that he went up stabbing his own father um, because he said he believed that his parents were leftist pedophiles. Um, so I, I think that there probably are ways for, you know, that moment of, of, of wokeness to translate into collective action and to translate into changing the system itself. But I think, you know, in horror movies, because they're horror movies, um, that that is not what the moment leads to. The moment leads to, you know, fear and, and violence. I mean, is there something fraught then about making horror movies like they live because it's just feeding this or can you direct it in a sort of constructive way? Oh, um, well, because I mean, like, like, get out in a way. Isn't that sort of a conspiracy, like a a non-reactionary conspiracy story? Yeah, I, well, I think well, I mentioned it before because I think that the implication of get out is is leads more towards collective action, um, and and also people who are genu- genu- people who have genuinely been oppressed uprising, uh, whereas you know a lot of these other things that that. Uh, gain currency online the people who are doing the complaining have not been genuinely oppressed yeah you know they're just experiencing equality as oppression yeah what one of the things that i think makes conspiracy theories inherently reactionary is they're not real right there is real oppression um but a conspiracy theory is aiming that at something that is not the actual source of oppression right feminism is not responsible for your shitty life dude like uh and and so in a movie like get out the oppression is real like there is a like violence happening and, um, you know, it's something that I experience a lot as a community organizer when I'm working with folks who um, are aware that there's oppression, but often have in their heads um, very strange ideas of where that's coming from and what that's about. And so, you know, the idea of trying to channel that into collective action that's effective because it's aimed at the actual source of power is is really hard um, because folks have in their head all these narratives uh, that are not where, about where the real oppression comes from. Well, and it seems like movies very rarely focus on collective action. It's all about, yeah, I'm just going to take a gun. I'm going to go shoot the queen alien or like whatever. You know, it, it's not like I'm going to become a community organizer. I mean, I go, maybe that's not <laughs> dramatic enough or something, but it's it's much more – would be much more realistic and sort of um, constructive, right? Well, I mean, there's something to be said for simply, uh, you know, getting people to think about systems, Right. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think that we should stop showing they live because it has sort of this aspect that glamorizes violence. I mean, I think it's still an interesting movie and not every movie is instructive, right? I mean, that's one of the problems with conspiracy theories. It tends to see all texts as, con- as literal, like instructions to do things. Um, <laughs> and we can think abstractly about the world. And I, I think 
what great horror does is, again, sort of show us very clearly what we're afraid of so we get a better view of who we are. And They Live does that pretty brilliantly. Again, it's not subtle exactly, but it's it's incredibly entertaining. Uh, and I think, I, again, like I think that to the extent that horror movies can be politically constructive, it has to do with getting people to think about the systems that they live in. Also, a big part of it is, you know, every movie has a context, often, you know, historical. Um, and so when you look at conspiracy movies from that sort of post-JFK assassination period, like, um, you know, the man, well, Manchurian Candidate, I guess, was right before, but, you know, uh, uh, executive action. Parallax View. Yeah, Parallax View, Winter Kills, executive action, all that stuff. The goal was to provoke outrage, to, to say to an audience, look what is being done in your name, we should be outraged. Um, and it was very much a direct response to Watergate. They Live was very much John Carpenter, I think, feeling like a bit of a minority in the U.S. watching this country, which seemed to have lost its mind over getting rich and saying, wait, look how ugly this is. Um, and so, you know, I think now I would have a very hard time watching a movie where the people who unveiled this conspiracy were not members of a group oppressed by that conspiracy. And, you know, if they were, you know, a minority group, African-American women or something like Get Out, because like we were just saying, we all sort of know the conspiracy kind of works in the favor of white dudes more often than not uh, in the past. So it's just everything's tied to, to some extent the context in which it's made. I think that because collective action is something that I think about an awful lot, um, another way that like horror movies and narrative in general can support collective action in a way they very often do, um, is just showing you that you're not on your own and your friends have your back. So like part of what makes Get Out so amazing is in the end, he, is saved by his friend. Um, and you think about a movie like Aliens where, um, you know, Bishop comes to help save the day. Um, and so the idea that it, we're not, we don't have to do it alone. We have friends who are awesome who will have our back, uh, is something that I think is really, uh, helpful in thinking about organizing and thinking about what we draw strength from. So another, uh, movie that I watched in preparation for this panel is The Purge. I'd actually never seen it before. <laughs> and so the premise of this is that in the future, the United States has instituted this law where one night a year, you can just go out and kill or commit whatever crime you want, and it's there'll be no punishment for it. And this is, has resulted in uh, unemployment is at 1%, crime is at an all-time low, violence barely exists, which seems like a fairly unlikely outcome uh, <laughs> from that experiment. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, Sam, what did you, have you seen The Purge? What do you think of this movie? All right, so I have deep feelings about this, and I have not seen it because of my deep feelings. Um, first of all, I have a real hard time with movies like um, this that often, at least in the trailers, seem to be just about helpless people being terrorized by dudes in masks. Um, uh, so... I shy away from that, but also I think it's this really profound but common misunderstanding and idea that, you know, crime is a product of, like, mental illness or a compulsion to commit crime as opposed to crime being something that people do because, you know, often they have to, right? People rob people because they need money. Um, and so the idea that, um, you know, for example, people won't be drug addicts anymore because of the purge um, seems strange to me. Um, so, you know, besides the fact that I don't want to watch people be murdered slowly, um, 
it's it seems to me pretty dare I say stupid. Uh, and that's why I haven't. <laughs> so I apologize if there's no, any purge fans no, and, and, uh, and, and, on, I, on the line. Oh, okay. Anna, go ahead. Well, actually, I, I want to just thank Sam because he's articulated why it is those movies bother me, but I haven't been able to f- – I, I was not able to really, like, put my finger on it, but he's right. Um, they depict crime as, uh, as, like, an active choice, that it's something that people, like, you could either be a criminal or not be a criminal, and that, you know, if you give people a chance to be a criminal once a year, you know, once a year, then the rest of the year they will choose not to. Um, and obviously it's a lot more complicated than that. I mean, I think, and, and also, I mean, those movies, again, I haven't seen them because the idea of them bothers me. And even, uh, the, the sequels and whatnot, I, I feel like they, they seem really smug. <laughs> they seem really like they're so proud of themselves um, for having even like a little have for having even a little bit currency. I think that they've the latest one like had some sort of nod to Trumpism in it, and it it was just ugh, you know um, it it seemed a little bit too um, smug to to really enjoy. And I also don't like movies where people are just terrorized and that's the plot of the movie. Well, let, um although go ahead. Oh, uh, well let me just say I mean having just watched the movie this afternoon, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's it's very clear to me that the filmmakers think that they're on your side with what they're trying yeah. to say. Um and I think that's a very sort of fraught thing, but I mean there's this um suggestion so so the the pretext in, within the fiction of the movie, the pretext is that oh, we do this purge once a year and it gets out everyone's um, criminal tendencies, whatever, and then, but but then there's this very strong suggestion in the first movie that that's just a a sort of cover story, and that the actual objective is to just sort of liquidate the the lower classes to to, to use this as a pretext to liquidate the lower classes. Um, mm. So there is that kind of, and I, I I I think that probably gets more explicit in the later movies that I haven't seen. Grady, Grady, have you seen any more any of these other movies? I've seen all of them. And I'm going to be the lone purge defender. <laughs> I mean, the purge is basically the story. It, it's, you know, the same story as Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Um, it's this idea that for a society to be healthy, they have to perform a sacrifice, right? I mean, that's The Wicker Man. That's Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. That's a, a really old horror trope that people have to get their bloodlust out. And then everyone's really happy and the corn is thick and ripe and we'll have a great harvest and there'll be no crime and unemployment will drop way down. I mean, you know, what's the difference between low unemployment numbers and a good corn harvest? You're just, you know, it's a little temporal shifting. Um, and and I think the Purge movies are, I agree, they're, they're not as smart as they think they are, but they're really, really interesting. Um, it's really, A, they are completely, um, they're cast with very diverse casts, which I think is really good. And they actually put a focus on that. And there's always sort of this um, weird underlying thing in them. I mean, the first one's a simple home invasion movie. And then they sort of ramp up from there and go out on the streets. But And there's always a really interesting thing in those movies where when you spot a white person in the cast they're the most dangerous person on the screen. Like those white guys in like gimp suits or like, you know, that white guy who says like, Oh, I, I just want to join up with your little group to be safe. Like, you know, they're trouble. Um, or wearing the little like private school jacket with the little yeah, crest on it. Exactly. Or the white guys in the, in the, in Congress who sort of set up the purge, um, who don't want a woman to get elected because she wants to destroy it. But there's also this really interesting thing in them. Um, 
in terms of safe spaces, uh, because the whole movie or, or about there's nowhere safe, right? You, for one night of the year, you can't be safe. Your home isn't safe. The streets aren't safe. The hospitals aren't safe. Nowhere is safe. And so it's really interesting to see sort of literalize this idea. I mean, safe spaces are so, uh, you know, mocked and, and oh, you liberals need your safe spaces, you snowflakes and all this. And yet here is a movie that literalizes the idea that there are no safe places. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's like hell on earth. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff in them. I mean, they're boneheaded. They're dumb. They're horror movies that are made for a big mass audience in the summer to get drunk and have fun to. But I think there's so much interesting stuff to unpack. And and really, it is just an update of, of the lottery, you know. I thought, is- I thought, Grady, weren't you just saying last week that you hate stories in which which it, the message is, oh, if you were to just pull away the cloth of civilization, everyone would just be killing each other because that's what oh, totally. underneath we're all animals. Totally. But that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons I really love some of the Purge movies, not all of them, but I think two and three, I get a little confused um, because the main characters, I believe in two are two women who do nothing but on purge night, they drive around and try to help people and like perform first aid and get people to like, a. I think there's like, um, uh, um, like one hospital or parking garage where people could get safe. And then the second movie is literally the entire thing is about a guy trying to protect this senatorial candidate. So yeah, I hate this idea that everyone goes nuts and goes out on this rape and murder rampage. The second you say no one's watching, um, but I do like the fact that the Purge movies try to focus on the people who are being altruistic. Hmm. All right. Well, I so if think, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, like, I think that it feeds really well into this moment that we're in, where half of us think the other half is trying to kill us, <laughs> and half of us, half of us are right. Yeah. Um, and, and so this this idea that like our neighbors want to murder us, um, I, I get the currency of that. I really do. Um, but uh, I think it 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 it's sort of uh, defeating and and cynical and like you know we're just we're just murderous monsters at heart. And if you give us half a chance, we will destroy each other um which you know i have no doubt that on some level that's true i also think that that's not the whole truth yeah well i mean yeah i agree with you i mean that stuff drives me crazy and it's been a trope i mean geez lord of the flies even earlier than that in the 50s you know like this idea that the second you can do whatever you want the first thing you want to do is kill people so Sam, what you were just saying that really segues nicely into the next thing i was planning to talk about which is american horror story cult which actually opens with footage of Trump selection night victory. And that kind of people just mentioned that to me. I, I hadn't watched the show before and that kind of intrigued me. I, I And I thought the first episode was really, really fascinating. And I sort of lost interest after four or five episodes. But I thought the setup was re- really I mean, basically, I just she gets like thre- uh, threatened by clowns every 15 minutes and no one will believe her. And <laughs> after like the, the, the 18th time this has happened, it, it, my suspension of disbelief broke down. Um, but, um, I don't know. Does anyone have any, Anna, do you have, did you watch this American Horror Story cult? I haven't, although you are making me think about, you know, what are going to be the great horror stories of the Trump era. Um, being threatened by a clown definitely seems a little <laughs> on the nose. I guess, I guess I should just explain. So the, the premise is that there's a, a, a gay couple and they, oh, two, two women and they, um, have an adopted son. And yeah, and it starts out with them watching the election results and just, you know, and they're just bereft. And uh, and then it turns out that the the main character I think had voted for Jill Stein, and there's like a thing about that. Um, but uh, I thought this, yeah, I thought the setup was so interesting. I don't know if if anyone tells me that it 
by the end, it gets really interesting. I might go back and, and watch it. I watched about four or five episodes, but I don't know. Sam, did you watch this at all? So we had broken up with American Horror Story the season before. Um, it ha- it has its moments. It, I really liked uh, the ser- the season about co- the coven, um, but the season before this one, which was Roanoke, was just like so many scenes of like torture and pointless uh, uh, violence that we just stopped. And we did give uh, this new season a shot, and we did watch the first two episodes. And I'm like, okay, I know exactly what's going on, um, and I hate this. Uh, so I, I don't have much that's helpful to say, except that I thought it was, uh, Ryan Murphy being, t- uh, t- uh, consistently, um, unsophisticated. Why, why did you hate it? I, I felt like it, you know, again, first of all, it is about a, uh, you know, a family being terrorized, um, and a, and a gay family at that, which, um, hits very close to home. Um, and I also thought that it, the, the politicalness of it was so ham fisted and so kind of on the nose, um, that, that it wasn't doing anything interesting or new. It was just kind of reveling in the, the horror of our moment and rubbing our noses in, in it as if we didn't get enough of that every day. Did you think this was just a lost cause or if someone like hired you to rewrite it, is there any version of this story that you would, that you would enjoy? I mean, they'd have to pay me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I jump in for a yeah, second? Yeah. I was just thinking about what what is going to be the horror story. What kind of horrors can can we expect? Like if, when we look back on this time, if we can look back on this time, <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I, I don't know if I've seen it or not. You know, Get Out is something people point to, but of course, it was actually you know conceived of and made prior to the Trump era. Um, but to me, I think it's going to have to be something to do with uh, not so much that you know, one half of us thinks the other half wants to kill us, and you know one of one of those halves is right. Um, but rather, uh, I'm I'm thinking something more along the lines of a, an intellectual or psychological horror story of Cassandra, um, of just not being believed. I think there is something that you know I I feel like I have some personal experience with, and, and because of my podcast, which is about talking to people who you don't agree with to a certain extent. I hear a lot about it from from listeners, um, which is, you know, when you're trying to talk to someone who's bought into the conspiracy theories, like, and they won't, you you, you can't find a place of common ground. Like, it, there is something horrific about that, like just being not being able to, 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 to get someone to see the truth. Uh, and, and that frustration and, and that does lead to some, some place pretty dark. Well, there's something really interesting about what you're saying, because when you're talking about getting someone, talking to someone who's believes a conspiracy theory, um, and, and you can't get them to see the truth because the horror answer to that is, well, how are you so sure you're, you're the, right. the speaker of the truth? Like their belief in their conspiracy theory and their sort of worldview kind of calls into question everyone's, right? Like, you know, I don't think Anunnaki, you know, seven foot tall Anunnaki lizards that eat babies are masquerading as the royal family and secretly running the world through the Rothschilds. But maybe? Like, I don't know, man. Um, and so it's really like, that's, that's the destabilizing thing about conspiracy theories. And I think like you're saying, it is that psychological thing of it calls everything into question. And at the end of the day, are we all just sitting around just, you know, proclaiming our own version of what's real? And and there is no real. I mean, that's the matrix, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, 
Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, you. Well, I was going to say I I um I wrote a little bit about this for my sci-fi column. Uh, I looked for, I was looking for examples in genre of of people living in their own realities, and one of the things that I came to realize is that in genre, in most, I I couldn't find an example where the the point wasn't to at least it wasn't to get to reality right? <laughs> like That's always the goal is to arrive at whatever reality is. Mm. And, and what we're missing today, I feel like is like this even agreement that we can get there. You mm. know, I mean, I don't even quite know how to even articulate it. You know, maybe Inception is like the right, <laughs> well, yeah. is the right movie. Well, there's a really um, interesting thing there because, you know, there is that thing where, you know, there's two ways of looking at horror, right? Is horror, and a lot of people say horror is very reactionary and conservative. I think someone was talking about that earlier that, you know, here, here's these people and they're minding their own business and then a monster or a ghost or something bad comes along and, and, Either you have to lay it to rest or it's going to kill you um, and society has to be restored. But then there's sort of the Clive Barker horror approach, which is like you're a normal person minding your own business. And then this fabulous monster comes along and and maybe you can have sex with it. Like maybe, maybe embracing <laughs> that monster, maybe becoming part of that monster. Maybe, you know, maybe it's monstrousness is not so monstrous. It's just another way of being alive, right? Um, it's that David Cronenberg thing, you know, insects don't have politics, but, you know, germs have a, you know, his movies are from the germs point of view. Like maybe it's just another way of existing. So there is that like weird thing where it's like, we're not defending society from the monster. Maybe we embrace the monster and become part somewhere in between us and it. I don't know. Let me say, I mean, because I, I just see these analyses where it, it says, you know, liberals watch these TV shows and read these news outlets and conservatives have. And then it's like these two completely separate spheres. But that is not the case with horror as far as I know, right? I don't know. Are there like separate horror, you know, movies for conservatives and liberals? And that strikes me that maybe that is one place where people are, you know, are, are, are sharing in the same thing and maybe ideas can cross that membrane is yeah. within horror. I I doubt if there's a lot of conservatives, you know, watching American Horror Story, I guess. I mean, well, but were they watching it up until that season? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that big, you know, blockbuster horror definitely, like, it, it is, it plays on a, with big enough kind of pieces uh, that almost anyone can project what they need to onto it. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, that's a good question. Well, I think a lot... Go ahead. I, I, I just feel like, I mean, The Purge has this very, to my mind, this very like the 1% is screwing us, they're killing the poor, et cetera, message. But I feel like that's the kind of movie my sense is that appeals to that like conservative audiences, particularly young conservatives would go see. That's just my sense of it. Well, I feel like The Purge throws so many things against the wall. Like, it's hard to figure out what The Purge is. Like, when you go through all four movies, the point of view is that I feel like you can kind of pick and choose the pieces that appeal to you when you watch it, right? Like, hey, this is a movie about how horror, how the 1% is manipulating everyone and they want to get rid of poor people. And it's only by like diverse communities bonding together and like forming alliances and rising up that we can win and, and having a political voice. Or you can look at it and say, see, this is a movie about like how you know, the second you tell people there's no law and order, they all go nuts and start killing each other. And yeah, or, Frank or why you have to keep to guns punch in your in house the or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you guys do know that the, you know, person, uh, who is the Blumhouse, um, publicity person, 
I wound up going to work for Jared Kushner, right? <laughs> like he was working in the White House. And Blumhouse, for people that don't know, Blumhouse is, is a horror, like, um, movie production house that, that does The Purge and a bunch of other, um, franchises. But I, I remember reading that he left recently and people thought that maybe he, <laughs> that, you know, um, when the White House becomes too much of a shit show, even for someone who's used to prom- promoting, <laughs> like, The Purge, then, uh, you know, maybe there's a problem. Well, isn't there, um, um, who's the dude who writes the horror novels that he self-publishes? Who's in the shoot? Is he? I think he's a state senator in Texas, but super pro-Trump. Um, and that was, and I think he got appointed to some cabinet position or deputy cabinet position. Gosh, I wish I'd looked it up. But everyone was making fun of him online when he was nominated for this position because his big claim to fame was he belonged to a paranormal ghost hunting group and uh, self-published horror novels. I mean, Grady, you belong to a paranormal ghost hunting group, right? So. <laughs> exactly. And we're all super duper right wing. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that when you were talking about like what, you know, I think a lot of it depends on what kind of horror is coming out of this era, depending on how you read the horror. Because like if you look at 2015, 2016, there's a ton of movies from there like um, uh, Green Room and 10 Cloverfield Lane and Split. And um, The Witch and The Invitation that are all like, who can you trust? Like the whole point of that movie is you don't know someone. Is this person a witch? Is this person a Nazi? Is this person, you know, crazy? I mean, is this person like, you know, um, which a nice personality or a bad personality? Like it's a whole chunk of movies that are all about people trying to, there are people's lives depending on trying to figure out who they can trust and who it's safe to talk to. Um which is kind of interesting, but I think all those movies can also have multiple other readings. Well, I want to mention Green Room because, um, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's uh, about a bunch of uh, a band who's basically trapped in a club surrounded by Nazis who are trying to kill them, like neo-Nazis who are trying to kill them. And one of our listeners, Tate Williams, recommended this to discuss in this panel about politics and horror. And he says, this maybe wouldn't have been considered political a couple of years ago, but the Green Room is about neo-Nazis and is terrifying. I just thought that was a really interesting observation that – yeah, yeah. Like when this movie came out, people would not have seen this as a political movie, and then post Charlottesville and everything, it sort of I mean comes to be seen I, I as think, political. I think that uh, you know, even though a lot of these movies were made and conceptualized, and in many cases released before the 2016 election, this dude didn't come out of nowhere, right? This has not. This has been what's been going on in our in in this country for years, right? That um, there's been this increase you know, under Obama of like white supremacists getting in their feelings and uh, feeling attacked. And, you know, people called uh, Obama the greatest gun salesman in history because gun sales were skyrocketing because, you know, lunatics had to have their guns to prevent themselves, to protect themselves from the black dude. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think these are these, these, these conversations, these, these horror films do feel like the, the, the response to the sort of horror that we've all been feeling um, from both sides. Um, and so, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that continuing as sort of like, what is the characteristic of the horror films of our, of our moment? Did you, what did you think, Sam, about Green Room or, or any of these more recent horror movies that Dick Grady was just talking about? I mean, I'm Jewish, so I, there's something about, something about the actual Nazis that I, made me not watch that movie. Um, so I didn't, I didn't see the green room. I, uh, I cannot, cannot speak to its, uh, its politics. But yeah, I mean, I think that, like, with, with Get Out, um, which, 
interestingly, is also a Bloomhouse film. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there is this, and and that do, that too sort of has this uh, who can you trust feeling, and um, you know people are real nice, but they might have a body stealing torture uh, lab in their basement, and they they're only being nice to you because they want to steal your body. I think it's interesting, Sam, what, that you and Honor are both saying. It seems like there are a lot of movies that you choose not to watch because of the politics. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry for having principles, David. <laughs> I mean, this is no, this is not a criticism. I'm just, I think it's an interesting observation. I mean, I don't know. Do, is is that something that people who write horror need to keep in mind that some of these subjects are just profoundly alienating for maybe a large segment of the audience? It's funny because I think there's cer- there are certain kinds of horror movies that I can't watch because they're just too upsetting. Right. And which I may, maybe what his point about the neo Nazis is. It's not that I'm insulted by it, but like it's just t- hits too close to home. Actually, um, like home invasion movies are really hard for me. Like I don't know why, but, um, I just, that's, it's, a, it's a kind of horror that feels too real, you know? Um, and then actually it's funny you mentioned Cronenberg. Like Cronenberg movies also kind of, uh, <laughs> weird me out. I think it's probably his relationship to the female body, <laughs> which, you know, is you know it, it he doesn't he's not kind to it um body horror movies tend to like make me pretty upset and then um movies that just seem like an excuse to do violence um the saw movies of course um which i think i'm intellectually interested in <laughs> but um <laughs> like i'm interested that there are so many of them and they're so successful but like i have zero zero desire to like watch them um, well, a lot of people were yeah. saying Saw Six has some profound political message in it. I didn't make it up. In, I didn't make it past the first two, but uh, yeah, well, every, asshole on my, every asshole on my Facebook page has a profound political message. That's not <laughs> enough for that's not enough for yeah. me to endure two hours of pain. Yeah, there's already enough pain in the world, you know. Like, I mean, the part that I that I'm interested in. I mean, I do. We didn't really talk about this. Maybe it's not. Maybe this isn't a political opinion um but the kinds of horror movies i really love are the ones that are atmospheric and that make you question the movie rather than you know get jump scares out of it i mean i like a good jump scare sure but you know i found like witch was one of my favorite movies of the past few years because it's just it's so tense the entire time right and you just you're drawn into it and the questions that it asks um it's not very like there's very little in it that's actually like horror or even you know scary um stuff it's just that that the question of what will happen next just looms over it so large i mean but i know that's I, I, for me the definition of a good horror movie well i totally get what you're saying about you don't want to watch certain movies because of just the violence or whatever i mean i personally i don't like movies where the people are just tied to chairs or something and being tortured but it seems like you were saying that there were certain movies that you wouldn't watch specifically because of the politics or or, am i misunderstanding that well i mean i think the purge movies are the only ones that i would say that the politics kind of turned me off i mean i'm trying to think if there's anything else that i wouldn't see because of the politics i mean it's generally more more violence that turns me off which but but violence is a kind of politics you have to say (laughs) you know i mean women's bodies are not treated real well in horror traditionally um and so there's there's a fair number of horror movies that i can't that i'm not comfortable watching just because of because of that i mean like slash like my husband likes slasher movies which maybe i don't know says says something about our marriage but like (laughs) but i I don't i mean i can't watch those um although we did were we going to talk about it follows 
because that's an interesting commentary on our times too. And I was thinking about it actually when we were talking about um, collective action, that that movie is a horror movie um, that it's not really conspiracy or how the world really works. Um, but it sort of takes this thing that we take for granted, you know, which is sex and turns it into horror. Um, and then the only way out of the, that horror is to come together and, and to rely on each other, which, you know, it's rare horror movie that, that really does that. Well, also the only way out of it is to totally like deceive someone and basically give them a venereal disease. Well, there's two deep, there's two different ways out, right? <laughs> right. Like there's the, there's right. the passing find, it on way. The other way. And there's the other way. They become yeah, community yeah. organizers, basically. They do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And they accept that life means walking down the street and not knowing whether you're going to die horribly at any moment. Yeah. Uh, great at some- in, that, in, in a weird way, but yet find some like peace in that, right? Like we're just going to have to continue existing. So anyway. No, I, I love It Follows. We did a panel on um, unnamed horrors. And we talked a lot about that. If anyone wants to hear more of my thoughts on that, I, was, <laughs> I, I love that movie so much. But, but great. It sounded like we're, we're earlier. Was there something you wanted to say? Oh, no. I was just going to say, you know, the interesting thing about um, – I feel like one of the things that's really – if you look at this from the other way around, right, rather than what horror movies or books um, – uh, traffic and politics and conspiracy theories, you look at like what can, cons- like how that works the other way around. And it's really fascinating to me that so many conspiracy theories and even ones that actually become pretty mainstream are group exercises in a mad, like group storytelling exercises in making horror stories. Um, the fear of communist infiltration in America. It was entirely fictional to, I mean, not entirely, but to a large part it was fictional, but the imagined depredations that we would undergo that, you know, people wrote about and gave sermons about and gave lectures about and made movies about and, and, and spoke about seriously from the floors of Congress. Like, we're just made up horror stories about communist concentration camps and, you know, churches being burned to the ground and all that. You look at, um, conspiracy theories about, uh, you know, who killed Kennedy? I mean, it's the greatest game of telephone ever played. It's this horror story with nine million people holding a, bl- uh, a rifle. And, you know, it's just really fascinating to see how – and why the satanic, the satanic they panic say, is yeah. like – this, it's a really this made up horror story. Yeah. Yeah. But they're really detailed and they're really well imagined. And the details sort of jump from person to person. I mean, they almost seem to take on a life of their own. I mean, I don't know if people remember Y2K, but literally, literally it went from our computers may not quite make the jump to a new way of counting years. Um, and that might cause some glitches in the system to people hoarding guns and ammunition and food. I mean, I was doing documentary stuff right before Y2K and hanging out with some militia groups and stuff. And like, there were these elaborate, elaborate scenarios and it wasn't just fringy people. I mean, it was the cover of Time magazine, you know, and inside there'd be a story about, well, it probably won't happen, but maybe we will end up eating rats on sticks and prostituting our babies for penicillin. Like, it was really this crazy imagined story. And so I find these group fiction horror story exercises really, I mean, they're almost like idea monsters that take on a life of their own. Um, yeah. like I what if scaremongering yeah. can win a presidential election? Yeah. <laughs> like what about the knockout game? I, oh yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's a horror story that like, that basically about something that does not exist, you know, um, 
although it's funny, so you're talking about conspiracy theories and in the horror they create. Um, I have sort of a weird fascination with uh, right wing figures who try to write fiction ah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. the stuff that they <laughs> that they believe. Like I've read all of Glenn Beck's novels, um, woman. and which are all basically just dramatizations of what he actually believes. They're terrible, and and it, it's it's because they're just. He's just writing down kind of like a slightly, you know, a le- more elaborate version of the stuff that you can hear on conservative right wing talk radio all the time. You know, like United Nations is taking us over. Um, uh, Agenda 21 is, is, it sounds like it's supposed to be about golf courses, <laughs> but really is about, you know, FEMA concentration camps. Um, and, and, and it's just so, it makes terrible horror. Right. Like, it's funny because I, I feel like he's trying to do exactly what you're talking about, saying like, oh, I find this idea of the United Nations taking over the U.S. very scary. So I'm going to write a book that shows people how scary it is. But it's not scary. <laughs> well, but it's you probably – is it scary to people who believe that stuff? It probably is, right? I, you know, actually, that's obviously, I, I hadn't really thought about that. Like, I just thought about it like this is like incredibly leaden prose, uh, right? Oh, like, yeah. and this is like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just not, it, you know, it's just not well done. And, and part of that, but part of me feels like the reason why it's not well done is because the ideas are so bad. You know, they're not bad ideas, but just like yeah, leaden ideas, you know, leaden ideas lead to leaden writing. Are- um Go ahead. Are there any of those people, Anna, who are writing actual, like, honest to goodness, supernatural horror, like, like conservative <sighs> figures like that? Not really supernatural horror that I can think of. I mean, there's a fair number of conservative science fiction writers, and there's, of course, a whole subgenre of conservative thriller writers. Um, like I Brad guess Thor. Left being Behind the is most... kind of that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, although. Again, that's actually sort of the same thing. That's like all they're doing is just like writing down what they think is already going to happen. Um, and there's something about that process that just robs it of any mystery or um, suspense. Actually, you know what? That's the problem. I just stumbled onto it is there's no suspense because it's all just like what they think is happening. There's no question about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Like, it sort of informs the whole thing that this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. I mean, the Left Behind books are kind of preposterous, right? Because they're, it's, they, the people writing them believe the literal Bible. They, they have no way that they can make their story different from what it is in the Bible. There's like, <laughs> There's there's nothing that can happen. They can't make they can't create characters or create plot twists um, that don't fit this already published many hundreds of years old text. Well, now like now you're just trash talking Star Wars fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 let me just say about Left Behind though that just occurred to me when you're talking is that part of the reason that there's no suspense is because the agenda is so clear and the politics of the author is so transparent. You know who the good guys and the bad guys are, yeah. right? It's not going to turn yeah. out that the, um, you know, the, the Christians are like the bad guys halfway through the book. I mean, you know, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be really see. That would be interesting, right? Like that would be an interesting thing to have happen. Um, but you're right. That's what I was trying to say. That they're they're locked into a narrative that's hundreds of years old. Um, that yeah, nothing new can happen. There's there's no twists. There's no suspense. I want to get Sam back in here. Sam, do you have anything you want to add on the subject of, I don't know, like conservatives writing horror or anything like that? Uh, I'm 
I'm completely unaware of this world that I have apparently tried very hard not to see. Uh, it doesn't look like anything to me, as they say in Western. Um, I will have to do some reading. I, I am uh, pretty uh, – actually, I will probably not have to do some reading. But I thank you for your service for doing that reading because um, it sounds terrible but uh, fascinating. I guess like before we run out of time, I did want to give you, Sam, and, and Grady a chance to talk about your experience putting politics or not into your own fiction. Is there anything, Sam, you want to say about like, do you try to put politics into your fiction or do you uh, try to avoid that? Or what's what's your kind of approach to that? Yeah, I think that it's it is very difficult to do, um, but I can't help it. Um, you know, I had uh, Holly Black as my instructor at Clarion, and one of the things that she said was that really struck me was that if you're going to argue a political point in fiction, you kind of have to argue the opposite, right? You can't just be like, um, you know, uh, abortion is wrong, and here's why, right? So you got to write a story about a person who believes the opposite, uh, uh, and get go around to that. Uh, sort of show their evolution as a person. Um, so, uh, I don't think that abortion is wrong. I, that came out wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, uh, I understood but, what you were saying. I understood <laughs> the point you were trying to make. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, I think that often, um, when I am trying to traffic in political stuff or real world oppression that I think people are ignorant of, um, I will try to sort of embody it in characters who feel real and who are trying to, uh, do something and who sort of learn things over the course of it. Um, and, and it is interesting, you know, we sort of had this, this conversation about whether the purge movies, um, are helpful, like whether conservative or, uh, progressive people will see these movies differently, whether they both can enjoy them. And I, I, I th- in the end, I think I have to come down on the side of it's a feature, not a bug that, uh, that, you know, anybody can take something away from this story, right? That, uh, narrative storytelling is such that it'll allow us to, um, you know, to enjoy it and to maybe, you know, feel strengthened by. I, I, I've given up on trying to convince people who don't agree with me. I think my main goal now as a writer is to give like love and hope to people who do agree with me. I want to put in a plug, Sam, for your, the, the pyrokinesis Stonewall story. I, I don't can't remember the title, but I thought that was the heat great. Of, the Heat of Us. Thank you. Yeah. So people definitely check that out, The Heat of Us. And are there any, what, what would you say are maybe one or two of your other most political stories or... Well, my new novel is called Blackfish City, and uh, it's about a floating city in the Arctic after rising sea levels have transformed the globe. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of my anxieties about climate change, but also um, there's a major plot line about landlords keeping uh, apartments empty so as to increase the demand by lowering the supply and make more money. And that's exactly what I've spent the last 15 years working on as a community organizer, and nobody gives a shit about it. So um, I wanted to write an adventurous exciting story full of bloodshed and revenge that does that thing that I'm obsessed with that no one else is. So yeah, Grady, what's your most political, what's the most political fiction or horror that you I don't, you know, it's funny. I feel like when you're writing a book, you've got to focus on characters. And so it's really hard. I'm not good enough to make a bigger point beyond that. Like I, I sort of have to just get them through to the end of the book. And then I'm usually really tired. Um, but, you know, I had this book coming out in September, the We Sold Our Souls book, the heavy metal book, and it's sort of a, a riff on the Faust legend, right? And, and I had to sort of take that seriously. Like, if you're going to sell your soul for fame and fortune, like, how do you do that? Like, what's the market value of a soul? What's a soul? Like, what is the going rate? And also, who do you sell it to? And I feel like horror has really 
not engaged in a direct way with the changing vocabulary of the world around us. Like, to me these days, the language of horror is, you know, swatting and black sites and false flag operations and, you know, chemtrails and MK Ultra and all this. And that's, that's, you don't see that a lot in horror. And so I really wanted to make the, the sort of Satan, the big, the big bad that you do sell your soul to, the, the culmination, the conspiracy theory behind the conspiracy theory. Um, and that was really bleak. Um, because I think like Anna was saying, conspiracy theories don't go anywhere except into themselves over and over again and just get wrapped up tighter and tighter and tighter until you can't breathe. And it's not a, a fun place to be. Um, but it, so, so that was kind of rough, but that's about as political as I get. And that was more like, what does the conspiracy at the center of the world that manufactures mind control television shows want exactly? <laughs> um, uh, rather than anything more uh, bigger picture than that. But, and, but I just want to say something, you know, one of the reasons I feel like conspiracy stories bloom and, and grow so quickly. And like, you know, there are things like the Turner Diaries, which is that wildly successful, um, underground novel that was published about race war, I think in the seventies and which is a real thing for, for, for neo Nazis who, who love it. Um, well, it inspired the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah, exactly. To some extent. Yeah. Um, and stuff like, you know, we're, we're talking about the Left Behind series and, and even before Left Behind, the Thief in the Night series, the Christian films, or if footmen, or if horses tire, what will footmen do? And all this stuff. And I, and I totally agree with Anna. A lot of it, the execution is really amateurish and really terrible, but there's a huge audience for this. And you have to ask yourself, what are those guys not getting? that makes them turn to this stuff. They're willing to put up with the amateur production values. And, you know, a chick comic book is not drawn as well as a Marvel comic book, but millions of those things are out in the world. And and I really think there is a real comfort in seeing what you feel like is your story told by someone else to you. Um, you're the beautiful princess in the tower and you lit down your hair and you're going to get whisked off and everything will be okay. And your your dad reads that story to it. But you're the brave kid, you know, who when the commies take over America, you're going to join the Wolverines and get an AK-47 and save the United States. Like that was my big bedtime story as a kid. Or like, you know, you're the, the Christian woman who has to stand up when the godless United Nations comes in and rounds us all up and sing Amazing Grace as they lead you off to the, the FEMA <laughs> gas chambers. Like, you know, people want to see what they think is their story. And I think there is a way that these stories, these conspiracy theories, all that grows up where there's no, where we, whereas fiction, we've kind of failed to reach people who see themselves there. Um, and so I hate seeing that stuff get dismissed because to me, those are people. It's, it's an audience. We've failed to oh, reach them. I don't think that, I mean, I don't mean to dismiss the people that read them at all. And actually, I should tell you, there's a, a book about the Left Behind series. I cannot remember the name oh. of it. It was some, it's a, some woman's graduate thesis, uh, where she studies kind of the subculture of Left Behind theories or Left Behind like fans. Yeah, I read it and I'm trying to remember. And it's what, what she comes away. She, she goes into the field. She's a sociology, uh, doctorate candidate, I believe, when she was doing this. And she basically does like a anthropological study of people who are fans of the Left Behind series. And what she discovers is that they, um, yeah, they take great comfort in it. And what they, what, what they get out of the books isn't really 
the kind of uh, heroism narrative that you're talking about mm-hmm. necessarily, where they, they're they part of the group that saves the world. Um, what they kind of get out of it is the idea that they that that evangelism works and that you could save other people because one of the big problems with American evangelical culture, and I say this as someone who's a Christian myself, (laughs) uh, is the emphasis on saving other souls. Like you're made to feel as though you're a failure if you're not actively going out and recruiting. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but the thing is, recruitment doesn't really work. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is not, a, a, it's, it's very hard to do and it's very punishing on your, you know, self-esteem. And a lot of Christians uh, don't have a lot of success with it and they, but they feel bad that they don't have success with it. These books um, offer both a world in which evangelism works and they make people think if I give someone this book, it will be the evangelism, you know, magic. Uh, key mm-hmm. that I need that, that she discovers there's a huge kind of like subculture in people buying these books to give to other people to be the red pill yeah yeah exactly sorry you, but yes perfect hmm. I wish I'd thought of that yep no that's really interesting actually well when you're talking about that sort of gets back to the thing I was bringing up earlier is to, what in, influence do these stories have on affecting people's political views in the real world and so on and I was, I was questioning does do people watch Dawn of the Dead and does it change their mind about going to the mall? And I don't I don't think probably not. But one thing that I think did actually have a real big impact on me was watching the um, the TV or I think it's a TV movie of the dead of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. And there's this scene where the president is Martin Sheen. Um, they they sort of bring the nuclear button into him and he gives this big sort of crazy religious apocalyptic sort of speech and presses the button initiating worldwide nuclear war moments before his aides run in and say it's not necessary we've worked out a peace settlement or something and that was has always just been very very haunting to me and that has always just stuck in my mind so much and i feel like it did really at least for me make me much less likely to support a candidate who i could imagine in a scene like that well you know look at the fact that um i mean we were at our t- most tense moment with the Soviets in the early, early 80s. I can't remember. I don't want to say the year. It was 82 or 83. I think it was 83 going into 84. And it, literally the rhetoric coming out of Reagan's White House was incredibly, incredibly hostile and aggressive. And they screened the day after that silly television miniseries about a nuclear first strike hitting America. Um, and it's an okay miniseries, but I remember being traumatized by the scenes of nuclear war in them, and they were appalling. And it screened for Reagan in the White House, and literally about six weeks later, Reagan, he wrote in the, his diary that night that it gave him nightmares, it made him feel like that, that, that nuclear weapons were in and of themselves bad, that they shouldn't even be in the hands of Americans, because ultimately there would be a mistake, there would be an accidental launch, there was no way that they could be even kept by us safely. And within six weeks, he was stepping down his rhetoric, you know, and, and by the end of his term, we were, we were, you know, moving towards much better relationships with the Soviets. And so really, I think sometimes these movies and stuff, you don't know where it's going to happen, but they do have this enormous impact. that's hard to calculate. Uh, Anna, what do you think about that? I am actually, <laughs> I have been trying to find the book <laughs> that, um, that I cited. 
Phil behind I got really Phil. obsessed with it. Like, oh, I just want to find it. Um, because it, it is, and it's funny though, because um, it it's interesting that I so I've been googling like books about Left Behind, and I am reminded this this I think sort of dovetails into everything we've been talking about. There's actually a recent um book called Left Behind that's actually about you know rural America. It's about the mm-hmm. people who read. It's it's not literally about the left behind books, but it's about the idea that there are these people in America who feel left behind. I mean, there is a book by uh, Robert M. Price. I haven't read it, but it's called The Paperback Apocalypse, which is his analysis of the Left Behind series. And he has, you know, like PhDs in biblical studies and stuff. So, you know, I, I think that's probably worth looking into. Well, you know, one of the things is just talking about people feeling left behind, like doing the research for We Sold Our Souls and like just spending so much time in the conspiracy community, which I hadn't done since like the early 2000s and like going to the message boards and the lists and all this stuff, reading all the fan, the fiction and self-published stuff. There was, you know, the thing that really I found upsetting was this, just this core of hopelessness, um, more so than I saw in the conspiracy community pre-2000s. Um, this real feeling that, you know, there's no point in fighting, give up. The game is rigged before you were born. And honestly, the most you can do is perceive it. And all that's doing is letting you see the bullet that kills you. Like this, this idea that there is no hope. And that's really something that I think is really toxic and really pervasive. And, when you see people who want to have a narrative they feel speaks to them reinforced and that narrative is so hopeless and so full of despair. I mean, I gotta say it really, I was really, really depressed. It really broke my heart. All right. So we're uh, almost out of time and Grady, I did want to mention in our emails um, in preparation for this panel, you mentioned to me that Stephen King used to be a Republican. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, well, is that, that true? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, he grew up, you know, in a, in a main family that was very sort of blue collar, very working class. Um, and, and, you know, you sort of accept the politics of your parents and then sort of either embrace or reject them later. So he was super Republican when he went off to the University of Maine. Um, and describes himself as such. And then by the end, with sort of the Vietnam uh, War and the peace movement and everything, he had sort of started going lefty and, and definitely against Vietnam. And I think he voted for Nixon, though, both times. Um, I'm pretty sure he did. Um, and then later in life, obviously, you know, not many years after that, by the early 80s, he was definitely, you know, way more of a Democrat and sort of moving to the left. Do you ever see any of that in his early fiction, the conservative... Attitudes. Not really. I mean, you know, you definitely, the thing I think it gave him is he takes people who are conservative or reactionary or very blue collar and, and Republican seriously in his fiction. Like he doesn't talk down to them. Um, but I don't know if that's a result of his political beliefs or the fact that he just grew up being enormously poor. Um, and those were the people he knew and loved who were around him, like his mother and his, his family. Um, you know, I mean, the most political book he's written is The Dead Zone. And that sort of came, I think, after, you know, that's what, 79, 80. And that sort of came after he had already feel, described himself as moving to the left a lot. I think The Stand was when he really sort of like moved away from the Republican Party or any of those inclinations. But it's interesting to look at The Dead Zone because that's literally a book justifying um, 
a, a presidential assassin, right? That like, well, this time the guy who shot the president or the guy running for president, he was right. You know, the visions inside his head that no one else can see or believe or that can be proved to really happening. Those <laughs> happen to be right. And he was good to shoot this guy. It sounds sort of bad when you put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it really is a book about trying to justify someone who takes a shot at the president or, or a political figure. I mean, it's kind of bonkers. And it's great. I mean, Anna, last time I, when I interviewed you before, you were talking about Stephen King. And I thought it was kind of funny because you were saying that about his uh, Twitter activism. Um, yeah. That you thought was sort of, uh, um, how to put it, like, sort of like... Normcore. <laughs> he and J.K. Rowling are just like normcore Twitter activism. I mean, yeah, I find it kind of endearing. Like, I, I mean, he's like, you know, hashtag resistance. Donald Trump is bad. Um, I, I think his 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 writing tends to be a lot more sophisticated, actually. And I think that's because he is not he's, you know, like the other two actual authors on the panel have, have talked about um, when you write a novel like you ha you if in order for it to be good you have to imagine an entire world and entire characters and things become more complex and so I think his his novels like the politics of them is is more subtle because it it in, they include characters who are pretty pretty realistic and being realistic part of being realistic part of being you know human is to have contradictions you know is to have subtleties in in what you believe i think he does his worst when he's kind of when he's actively trying to parody yes. right wingers yes um, under the dome <laughs> Yeah, like the, that's that, when he's really when he's actively trying to do politics in his novels. Like I think that's that's when they fail. I think his more interesting political kind of adventures are when the politics kind of infuses the entire story, like the Dead Zone, you know. Um, but I, I also he he really has a problem with actual with Christians too. Again, yeah. so I'm a, I'm a little sensitive, but. <laughs> But he tends to to portray them as being pretty simple minded and and bigoted, um, and I, you know there is that flavor uh, of of Christian in America, and they've they've done some harm. Um, but it, it, they're weirdly one dimensional compared to you know a lot of the other great villains and and monsters he's had in his books. Which Are is you saying the mom and Carrie was not a typical Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Even she actually gets a little subtlety, right? I mean, she gets you. He, there's a little bit of a, a you know, of trying to like get inside her head because in in order for the book to be any good at all, you can't have just a cardboard cutout. Well, and she's a great villain, and she turns out to be right. Carrie goes to the prom, and everyone does laugh at her, and she does wind up being the spawn of Satan. See, <laughs> <laughs> so, Sam, did you have anything you want to say about Stephen King or anything we've been talking about? Uh, I mean, I love Stephen King. I'm, I didn't know that he used to be a Republican, but it kind of makes sense. I do think that, um, you know, like some, somebody already said, there's like this, uh, one of the things that makes him such a great writer is how rich his characters are and how alive they feel. Um, and so there's, he, you know, one definitely gets the sense that he, uh, knows lots of people, including some like, crazy ones um and that he can he can bring them to life really well um so uh yeah that's now i have to go reevaluate things well it's my, my, my feelings about stephen king well it's weird what anna's saying though because she's totally right i mean when he does these christian characters they're so 
I mean, it really feels like someone who read about these so-called Christians in a magazine. And like King grew up in what was by all accounts like a really loving, really great Methodist church and actually used to preach at it when he was a kid because when the minister didn't show up, the congregation would take turns as the minister. So like he and his brother would deliver the sermon. So it's so weird that his like, he he defaults sometimes to these crazy, super right-wing Christian conservative characters who were his hammiest. Yeah. Well, it's more dramatic. I mean, if you're writing yeah. fiction, you know, can't write about sort of stayed normal. No, it's normal. true. It's true. Um, all right, guys. So we're pretty much out of time. So I guess I'll just go around and get a final thought from everyone on this whole subject of politics and horror. Any, uh, any final thoughts about Sam? Do you have any uh, any wrapping up closing thoughts here about the subject yeah just like everything is political uh all horror is political and and all politics is horrifying (laughs) (laughs) uh anna final thoughts about this I, I don't know if I can, I can top that. I mean, I, I think that it's always good to figure out what scares you always. I mean, I think that, you know, when you figure out what scares you, that's how you, you know, one of the ways you get closer to overcoming it. We talked a little bit about how rare it is to have horror be something that can be positive or community building, but there is, there is power in that. Um, and so, so hey, yeah, you know, go watch some horror movies, see what scares you. More horror movies about community organizers. I think that's the, <laughs> that's the way. Here for it. <laughs> uh, Grady, final thought? No, I mean, I actually think these guys nailed it. I mean, everything is political and all horror is political. The only thing that bums me out is we didn't. We only talked about American politics and horror. We didn't do the UK or Korea or Japan or anywhere, but, but maybe next week. Well, well, yeah, no, I, as I was looking over the list of things that people suggest and everything, I was just like, okay, there's, there's no way we're going to get to everything. Yeah. So oh, of course. we'll have to come, come this back is, and do some more. This is such a Leviathan subject. It kind of eats the world once you start on it. Yeah, but we'll definitely do more panels uh, on the subject. Um, and I hope that they're as good All as right. this one because this was awesome. And yeah. so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Anna Marie Cox, and Sam J. Miller. So thank you, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Anna Marie Cox, and Sam J. Miller for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Mandy Dragland and Alan Rines, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So, big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show... Visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.